the book of Ruth. It's this four-chapter book, and it's the only, interestingly enough, it's the only book in the Old Testament named after one of Jesus' ancestors. The only one. Ancestors. There's others, Jude and James, but those are Jesus' half-brothers who were living at the same time he was living. But an ancestor, Ruth, is the only book in the Bible that has uh, her name attached to it. And it's interesting, she's the only Gentile in the Bible uh, that has a book named after her. You might want to, you may say that maybe perhaps the Gospel of Luke, you know, there's some speculation on whether he's a Jew or Gentile, but uh, we won't go into that. But she's one of the, um, one of two books in the Bible named after a, a woman. You know what the other one is? Esther. There's two books, Esther and Ruth, yes. And it's interesting because when we just finished Judges, Ruth was originally part of the book of Judges. And if you recall, when we were in the last five chapters of Judges, specifically chapters 17 through 21, you'll recall that those chapters weren't necessarily uh, chronological. And in fact, um, many, some of those chapters could be placed earlier in the time of the Judges, and Ruth is no exception. In fact, this book is approximately, um, the history is about 126 years before King David was born. Um, we believe that Ruth, uh, that, that during this time that she was alive and this was going on, the events that we're looking at tonight in, in the next couple of weeks, that that occurred around the judgeship of Jair, which is in Judges chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. So if you write in, the, uh, in your Bible, right around that time in Judges chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, uh, around the judge of Jair, that's roughly around the time that this book was, the events of this book were, uh, were written. Or, you know, chronologically, it's where the event occurred. Does that make sense? Okay. So, and there's two places that we're going to be looking at in this entire book. There's really only two. Uh, it mainly centers around Bethlehem, which we know is just south of Jerusalem, and also Moab, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. Specifically, what we're looking at tonight in the next few weeks is on the other side, the east side of the Dead Sea. And those are the two places that we'll be spending most of our time in. And Jewish tradition has it that Samuel is the one who wrote this book. And when we look at um, the chronology that we have here in the last chapter of Ruth, we'll also come to understand that um, it was probably um, somewhere in the middle of the book, you know, of, of Judges. We already looked at that in J.R., and, and you can do the math there, and it, it's kind of interesting to see how all of these things line up. But some of the themes that we're going to come across in this book, probably the most significant thing that we're going to find is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. The idea that if a, if a man marries a woman and he, he dies, and without raising, without having children, the widow is to go to the next male in, in the next eldest male in the family, and he could uh, act as a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer certainly would not only take care of the widowed woman, but also raise up a seed for her husband. And and the way that this would work is that it would, or, or the reason being for all of that is that it would keep the inheritance within the tribe, within the family. 
And so that was really important. To you and I, it's sort of like, you know, your inheritance going down to your children. You don't want it to go to a stranger, right? Does that make sense? And so the, all their inheritance would go to members of their family within their tribe, and that's the way they have always done things. And so the kinsman-redeemer theme is quite uh, noticeable in this book, as well as David's right to the throne of um, David's right to the throne, and ultimately Jesus's right and claim to the throne of David. And we're going to see that between uh, Ruth and uh, Matthew chapter 1, which we're going to look at tonight, we'll see that Jesus Christ is, is um, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. She's the great-grandmother of King David, and so we'll look at that here shortly. So this book actually is a very powerful example that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not partial to one person or the other. And why, does that, why is that such a big deal? Because Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from the tribe of Moab. And so God wasn't concerned that she wasn't of the tribe of Israel, he wasn't concerned that she was a woman. You know, and I love that about God because so many people, uh, especially if you're of a legalistic slant and you look at the genealogy, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes, the legalist, it drives them crazy. Because when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, whom Ruth is part of that genealogy, people have a hard time with that. But God doesn't have a hard time with that. And so um, it is, it's really interesting how God is not a respecter of persons. He never has, and he never will be. And so let's look at, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 before we even get started here. We need to look at a few things that are really interesting Matthew chapter 1, beginning in, we'll just look at the first six verses. It gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice right off the bat, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now remember, the gospel of Matthew was meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is the rightful heir to the, to the, the throne of David. Okay, and so this lineage here is going to be, is going to give us that from Abraham all the way through Jesus Christ. So it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 2, it starts with Abraham. And then it says, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. And notice, Judah begat Perez, and Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and this is where it gets really interesting, underline this, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Does Rahab sound familiar to you? Remember, in Joshua, in the second chapter, when the, the two spies went in, before they actually went into the promised land, they went into Jericho, and it was Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, that, was, that hid the two spies. And she basically lied to cover up their, their, their coming into the town for their life's sake. 
And remember that her and her family were spared when the Israelites came in to destroy Jericho. She was to put a scarlet rope outside of her window there on the side of the, uh, of the, um, of the, of the hill there. And she did do that, and she and her family were spared. But Solomon, this gentleman by the name of Solomon, married her and gave birth and the child that they had was named Boaz. Now, Boaz is one of the key players in what we're looking at tonight. And so, because Boaz also had a wife, and we'll look at that as we go along here, Ruth, who was what? A Moabitess. She was considered a Gentile. So now, in Jesus' genealogy, we have a prostitute. We have a Gentile woman. And we're going to see even in Tamar, up, up in verse 3, Tamar was also a prostitute. And then we're going to also see that Bathsheba, who was an adulteress with David, she also is included in the genealogy. Of course, all of these people's hearts had changed. You know, when you look at Rahab and you look at Ruth and you look at Bathsheba, these people are in heaven. Because they didn't stay that way. They came into contact with Almighty God, and they repented, we believe, and they're, and they're in glory right now. But it's interesting that God doesn't have a problem with that. He doesn't, he doesn't see the need to go back and sanitize his word and revise history like they're doing so much in our history, in our schools and colleges and high schools. They didn't go back because it seemed, didn't seem appropriate for Jesus to be in a lineage of some questionable folks. And today, they'll just erase those names and rewrite the text. And kids learn it without knowing the truth. But aren't you glad that their names are there? Because that gives me hope. Because I'm not a perfect man. And by the way, you're not perfect people either, right? We are all in this together. And the fact that God doesn't have a problem with it, he's more interested on the, on the heart, even in Hebrews, it called Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. But did she stay a prostitute? No, but that's her name. That's the title that she had. But let me tell you, she's no longer a prostitute. After she came into contact with Solomon and the faith in God Almighty, she was a one-man woman. And her name is written in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. And so we see, and notice, Solomon begat Boaz by Rahab. What a scandal. And then Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, the, the main figure in the book that we're looking at tonight, a, a Gentile woman from Moab. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Wow. Quite a questionable um, genealogy, and yet God is not, he's not worried. He's not worried about it. And so Ruth's life is significant on many reasons. And you know, one of the things that I like about the book of Ruth is how applicable it is to what we're going through right now with all the racism and everything else. Is there race, racism in the Bible? Yeah, there is. Is God condoning it? No, he's not. And you may be asking, what are you talking about? And specifically, I'm talking about how the Jews felt about the Samaritans, these half-breeds, they would call them. In fact, when they would travel from Judah up to Galilee, instead of going straight through the land of Samaria, they would go across 
the Jordan and go up on the east side of the Jordan and then cross over right before you get up above the Sea of Galilee because these people were unclean. They mingled themselves with the Gentiles and therefore they were looked down upon. Was there racism in the Bible? You better believe it. The heart of man hasn't changed one bit. We are all the same. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? And so it is in the Bible. Did God, was he condoning this kind of attitude, heart attitude? No, he wasn't. And Jesus, in fact, broke it all down when he met that woman at the well in Samaria. Not only was he not supposed to, as a, as a Jewish man, to talk to a woman, he not only talked to her, but he, um, she was a Gentile. And he talked to her. This woman whom the whole, everybody in Judah would have looked upon and said, she's an unclean woman. And wouldn't you know it? I love it when it says in, in, in John's gospel, and it says he must needs go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because he knew there was a woman there who was written off by everybody else, the whole nation. But he knew that there was a woman who had faith. And he knew that there was a woman that once he told her, the fruit of her salvation would lead to the salvation of most people in her city. You can read the account. It's an amazing account. And so, in the time that we live in, this book is really amazing because it breaks down this stereotype. And neither should there be any racism for any Christian. None of us should look upon anybody else. Because the Bible says that we are from one. We came from one, Adam. We all came from Adam. After the flood, guess what? Shem, Ham, and Japheth populated the earth. And therefore, all of us in this room come from one of those three men. One blood. But yet enough in our DNA for the different variations of skin color. And we have everything we have. And God is not, he doesn't have a problem with that. And neither should we. We, the church, ought to be the most loving, caring entity in the world. We ought to look not upon the outward appearance as man does. We should treat every man the same. We should love every single person. It doesn't mean you have to trust every person, but we should love everyone and grow in that, right? And treat them as special in God's eyes. We should do that. So, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, now it came to pass... Notice, in the days when the judges ruled. So this very first sentence places this book in the time of the judges. Again, sometime, somewhere around Judges chapter 10, we believe. And notice, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, he went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Notice that they left because of a famine. Does, does it ring a bell when, when Abraham left Egypt? It's recorded for us in Genesis 12. He left. God didn't tell him to go. But Abraham decided because there was a famine in this promised land that God had told him to go to, there's, nowhere does it say that God told him to go. There was a famine, so I moved south, find food. I wonder what would have happened if Abraham would have just prayed and said, you know, but he was young in the faith too, so we got to cut him a little slack. But they were going to go 
They were going to leave and continue going down. And you remember the problem that it got, in with, got him in with Egypt. He had to call Sarai, who was really his half-sister in a sense. In order to save his own neck, he had to tell her, Hey, Sarah, you're a really good-looking woman. And when we get down to Egypt, Pharaoh's going to want you part of his harem. They're going to they're gonna take care of me. I want you to just tell them that you're my sister. And can you imagine the look on her face? I mean, to save your neck, I'm going to lie for you. But she did, and God intervened and got them out of the mess. But God didn't tell them to go there. And I wonder what would have happened if Naomi and uh, Elimelech, that we're going to see here, this man, I wonder what would have happened if they would have just prayed. But remember, they lived during a time where it says that there was no king in Israel at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there was a general feeling of apostasy, a general feeling of a very loose connection with God. They kind of did what they wanted, and we saw that as we looked through the book of Judges. But we see, we, we can never paint anybody into a corner. You know, you look at uh, Rahab, or I'm sorry, Ruth here, and you look at, you know, uh, Naomi, and you see what God was doing in their life. And you, you can't paint, you can't put everybody in the same bucket, which we tend to do. Oh, they came from a, a time in Judges. They must all be washed under the bridge. No, there was a spattering, a, a sprinkling, a remnant of those individuals who had faith, and certainly she was one of them. But, you know, they went down to the world, in a sense, for help, and we have to be careful to, that we don't do that. Even when difficult times come, we don't just put it on the credit card. The credit card has become the thing when God doesn't provide in the time that we want, and it's variable for everybody. If he doesn't come through on time, well, I just put it on the credit card and I pay the interest. I wonder what would happen if when we ran into trouble and we didn't have the money, if we just uh, prayed. And the Lord might bring you to the 11th hour. <laughs> I've seen him do this in my own life. He brings you to the 11th hour, and you're thinking, man, if I don't get this, I, I'm not going to be able to do this or that. And the Lord came through. And even if it's a little late, he allows grace, but he's always on time. He's not on our time schedule. We want him to be, we want him to serve us. We want him to be on our timetable. And God says, no, I am not going to be on your timetable because you will never grow if I am. There's something about the waiting. There's something about the patience of this whole thing that when we struggle, when we go through times, and we don't just run to the world, we don't just put it on the credit card, we wait and we pray and we ask God, and we, we, we determine in ourselves, I'm not going to do anything until he tells me to do something. I wonder what would have happened if Abraham would have done that with Sarai. I wonder what would have happened if when Elimelech and Naomi, if they did the same thing when they were in the land, they were in Judah, they were in Bethlehem. The place is called the house of bread. There's a famine. Oh, let's go. They take off to the world. What would have happened? How different things might have been. Would she have lost her husband? Would she have lost her two sons? Would they even have met each other? And you know, I love the fact that even in our blunders, even in our lapses of faith perhaps, the Lord is not slack. He's not shortened to do his will. Because this is the other curve that you can look at this too. As had they not gone, they would not have met Ruth. The son wouldn't have married Ruth, a Gentile woman, which was kind of a no-no for those of Israel, the men. 
He wouldn't have met her. She wouldn't have been part of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, Jesus wouldn't have had a problem with that. Let me see. I wouldn't have a harlot in my genealogy, but I don't think the Lord was concerned about that. He was looking at the bigger picture. And again, I'm glad that he does that. So let's go on here. So it says that, and a certain man from Bethlehem, Judah. So they came and they, they dwelt in Moab. And you remember Moab was the, one of the adulterous, uh, the, uh, the offspring of an adulterous, uh, I'm sorry, incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. Remember when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah that they left And the two girls, seeing that the city was completely destroyed, they came up with this plan and hatched a plan. Well, let's get dad drunk, and then each on our turn will go in unto him, and he won't know the difference. We'll get him so liquored up that he won't know what's happening, and then we'll lay with him. And that's exactly what they did. And again, lapse of faith. They had no no faith that God could raise up husbands and children. And they give birth, and the first one is Moab. And the second one is Ben-Ami, which is the people of Ammon. And both of these people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, have been a perennial enemy of Israel ever since. Out of an incestuous relationship. So they flee to this place. Then the the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi, verse 2. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and notice, they remained there. They remained there for at least 10 years. We'll find out about that a little bit later. But they were there for quite a long time. They were building a house, setting up residence. They were there. Elimelech, it's interesting, his name means, my God is king. And Naomi has a wonderful name. Her, her name means pleasant or my delight. And both Naomi and Elimelech were from the tribe of Judah. They were Ephrathites, which means an Ephrathite is what they call people who lived in Bethlehem. That's just an old name for Bethlehem is Ephrathah. You remember in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where the, the prophecy about Jesus? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That sounds like somebody other than a human being. And certainly that was a prophecy concerning Jesus. Out of Bethlehem he would come, and certainly he did. But notice, they remained in the country of Moab, and they remained there. And why would they go to Moab, seeing that the Moab, the Moabites, in their history, they were always hostile in their relationship with the children of Israel. In fact, it was the Moabites who led the nation of, uh, of Israel into temptation and sin. And we'll look at that as we go a little further. But remember, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Looking at verse 3, it says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died. So he died while in Moab. It makes you wonder what he died from. The Bible is silent about it. Could he have gone there and got some, something in the food? Maybe he, from all the travel, it's very rocky terrain getting around. They would have to go all the way from Bethlehem. They would have to go all the way to the, to the north of the Dead Sea and cross over where um, the children of Israel crossed over when they came into the Promised Land. And then they'd have to go down the other side all the way down to Moab. That was just a very more direct way to get there because you can't swim across the Dead Sea. 
could have been hard on him. And he died, and notice, she was left, and her two sons. So now she's a widow with two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. Now they're in a, in a land they shouldn't be in, and now they're taking women that they really shouldn't be taking. Now they're interbred with the Moabites. And now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. She has a really interesting name. Her name means gazelle. It's that little deer-like looking thing with the two horns sticking, you know. That's what a gazelle is. And, I mean, I wonder what this gal looked like. It's like, imagine her mom, you know, she gives birth and she holds out this thing and she looks like a gazelle. She's even got horns. You know, what did she look like? We don't really know. But then, ah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Ruth means friend or friendship. And she was a beautiful lady, a beautiful woman, outwardly. And we'll find that inwardly she was too, which is a very, I shouldn't say rare thing, but it can be. Oftentimes we look at the outward appearance. We look at people on the outside and we think, oh, I've got to have him. You single ladies, you know, you always want a man who's a godly man, but boy, if he's, if he's tall and handsome and he's got, you know, the, the muscles and he's got everything going and he's smart too, wow. Because most of the time, those kind of guys, and I'll say it because I'm, I'm, I'm not one of them, but, you know, uh, sometimes there's a, all, all the outward is there, but then there's like nobody home. The lights are on, but nobody's home. And that can happen with the ladies too. So it's not a guarantee of anything. And so Ruth is, is beautiful on the outside, and we're going to find that she's beautiful on the inside. And the Lord chose her. He chose this wonderful woman. He saw the inside. Nobody else could see it. And so should the sons of Judah have done this? Should they have taken wives of Moab? No, they weren't supposed to. I mean, Moab was an enemy, but marriage to them was not forbidden in a sense. If you recall, when Moses brought the children of Israel, one of the things that he told them, that God told them, and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 7. I'll just read to you. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, now we're going back some time now, but when they were coming into the promised land, and God told them, when I bring you into the land to go and to possess, and you've cast out the nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when your Lord Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall get, not give your daughters to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. But Moab was not one of those people, groups. So they were Gentile, probably not the best idea. They were Israel's perennial enemy. Probably would have been a good idea if they just forbear and waited a year and then went back home and married a good girl from Judah. <laughs> but then again, but God. And there's always that wrinkle. I love that. Whenever any impossible situation, any situation, you have to factor in the phrase, but God. Is, he, is his hand short that he can't do miraculous and wonderful things? God is not shortened like that. He can do amazing things when it seems impossible and when it shouldn't be done. He transgress, he, he um, doesn't transgress, he, 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 uh, he defies sometimes our human logic 
Why would he send his own son to die in our place? Only God could redeem us. Does God have to die? He did. Jesus, he died on the cross for us. But earlier, if you remember, in the book of Numbers, we saw that they had this problem with the Moabites from the very beginning when they were traveling from Egypt up to the promised land. Remember in Numbers 24 that Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab, he hired Balaam. Remember Balaam and the donkey? He hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. And Balaam would not curse the Israelites. But rather, he was a man who was, he, he was led by money. He had his own internal struggles. He was not the best. He was a, a, a greedy prophet. And ultimately, God used him to bless the children of Israel. But then the king, of ba- the king of Moab got so frustrated with him, he's like, you know what, you're of no use to me. And then Balaam says, ah, but there's one thing you could do. And it's recorded for us in Numbers 25. Why don't you go there really quick? Because I just want to paint the picture of this problem that they had with the Moabites. They were a perennial enemy. They, in their history, they've, they've been a thorn in their side. And why are they marrying these two women but God? Because one of them was Ruth. God saw something in Ruth, and I love that. But notice what happened in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. It says that Israel remained in Acacia Grove. That's kind of like their, their camping place. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And what Balak, or Balaam, excuse me, what he had told the king to do is to send the young Moabite girls into, uh, into, and to seduce the young Hebrew boys. And then God would have to judge them. They wouldn't have to do anything. God would judge them because of their fornication. And that's exactly what happened. And we see this right here in Numbers 25. It says, verse 2, They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, the Moabites, and the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So the Israelites bowed down to the Moabites' gods, who are many. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Baal was a, a, a title for many gods. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Just exactly what Balaam told Balak would happen, happened. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Now this sounds extreme, but God had a people... He had a specific plan for them, and idolatry was serious. It's serious business. It was then, and it is now. We don't take, we don't take it probably serious enough. But God used the, this small group of people, the Israelites, and through them, he would bring his word, he would bring the Messiah through this small group of people, the Jews. And indeed, verse 6, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And now Phinehas, we read about him when we were in uh, Judges, the, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, he saw it and he rose from among the congregation. He took a javelin in his hand And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And God commended this man, Phinehas, for doing so. Because they were in sin. Here he is, fornicating with a woman right under everybody's noses in the tent. 
all because of what Balaam spoke to Balak about. And so we've got this problem with the Israelites and now the Moabites. So it kind of paints a picture, doesn't it? Kind of adds a little more to this, the flavor of this event that we're looking at. But Moab was an enemy of Israel. Even in the book of Judges, you remember Ehud, he was, it says in uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 12, the children of Israel, again, in the book of Judges, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon at the time, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And we know that Ehud was a left-handed man from Benjamin. And remember, he slew Eglon and delivered them from their oppression. But yet, later on, it's interesting, if if we fast forward now a little bit, um, fast forward in time when David becomes king. And knowing that Ruth was his great-grandmother, let me read to you a passage. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 22 when David was on the run, remember, from Saul. Saul was hunting David to kill him because David had been anointed king. And David did this really peculiar thing. And now that we know that Ruth was the great-grandmother, it all makes sense, I believe. 1 Samuel 22 First four verses says, David, therefore, when he was being hunted from Saul, he departed from there, from the Adullam's cave, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, they gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, notice what he does. His life, he's on the run. He's a fugitive. So what does he do? He goes to the king of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please take, let my mother and father come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And you may think to yourself, this doesn't make sense. They were. They were perennial enemies, but the king of Moab also knew who David's great-grandmother was. And David evidently had peace with this man. And so he leaves his mom and dad with them while he's being hunted, which is a really nice thing to do because while he's running around away from Saul, he can't protect his mom and dad, Kenny. So he takes him to Moab. Very interesting, isn't it? Let's go back to our text now in verse 5. What does it say? Then both Malon and Chilion, these are the two sons of Naomi and um, Elimelech. Elimelech died, as you know. But the two sons, Malon and Chilion, they also died. They're in Moab. They die. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. I mean, this is like calamity of calamities. The poor woman lost her husband, and now she lost both of her sons after they had married Moabitish women. And so now you got three men dead and three widows. Three widows. It's interesting, Malon's name means sick, and Chilion's name means pining like pining away. I sometimes wonder if the names were chosen after what happened to them. But isn't that funny? It's interesting how their names, I'm certain they named them just like we do at childbirth. And yet they would die in a, in a, in a land in Moab. 
So verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. And again, she's lived in Bethlehem, the house of bread. They're there 10 years. She loses her husband, loses both of her sons. And now she hears word that the famine is over. And so, therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on to the way to return to the land of Judah. And again, if you were to look at a map, like if here is the Dead Sea, and this is the eastern side over here of the Dead Sea, they were over here in Moab. What they would have to do is go up around the Dead Sea and then go straight over west over into Jerusalem and then go down to Bethlehem with just a few miles south of Jerusalem. They would go the same route that the the Israelites when they went into the promised land, cross the same place. When we visited Israel this recent time, we got to see where they crossed over. It's amazing. It's all flat and, you know, it, it can accommodate millions of people. And certainly it did. But that's the route that they went. So now they go from Moab. Now they're going to go back. Naomi's going to take her, um, her daughters-in-law. But notice, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. I mean, these ladies all had something really wonderful in common. Uh, not really wonderful, but they had a, a camaraderie now. Each of them have lost a husband. And think of how they could comfort one another, what the comfort they've been comforted with. <laughs> they could comfort each other because they were all in the same boat. And Naomi's looking at these women from Moab, and she's like, girls, go home. Get married again. Marry into your own family. You know, your husbands are dead. And notice, she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And I don't know about you, but I can picture this so vividly in my mind. And do that. Put yourself in the story. Because it's not a story, it's history. But place yourself in the scripture when you're reading this. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. We want to be with you. She's got nobody to take care of her now. Her two daughters are, seem to be willing to help her. They're kind of in the same boat. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And are there still sons in my womb? By this time, Naomi's an older woman beyond her childbearing years. And she says, she goes, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? The obvious answer is no. They'd have to wait at least 13 years, 14 years before anything could happen, Right? I'm too old to have a husband. If they should say I have no hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughter, she says, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And I don't want to dismiss her heartache here, but as I, as I look at Naomi, I just see her as, um, at least for now, as being like an Eeyore. Oh, everything's hard on me. God has been hard on me. You know, and we're going to see this later on. She just, it's hard to be around somebody like that, isn't it? Just, God has been heavy upon me. You know, you're going to see that. But I wouldn't blame her, honestly. I mean, if you lost your husband, your sons, you'd probably be down in the mouth for quite a while, right? So I don't want to be too hard on her. So, 
Then they lifted up their voices, verse 14, and they wept again, and and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah, she comes, she kisses her mother-in-law, and she leaves. That's fine with her. She's She'll go back to her family. She'll go back and perhaps get married to a Moabite man. But Ruth is made of something different. God chose her. What a great privilege to be chosen of God, to be in the, in the lineage. I mean, how many millions of people there were, and yet this woman, whom God could see more than just her outward appearance, he looked upon her heart, and here is where it's proven. This is what proves what was really going on inside her. What does she say? Ruth clung to her, and she said, look, your sister-in-law, Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. The word is Elohim. We're going to see... Ruth, using the word Elohim in the next verse, they're the same word, but the context is so different. Orpah was going to go back to her gods, her false gods, but not Ruth. Not Ruth. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. I love the song we sing, and I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, um, uh, Aubrey read the chapter, and this is so perfect for this chapter. She said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, Elohim, again, except it's speaking of one God, Jehovah God, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. And I love this because here's where the heart of Ruth really shines forth. And this is faith and this is love in action. Isn't it wonderful to see? And God makes no mistakes. He chose this woman. And you see, um, you know, this is what faith can look like. And this is what love does, you know. And um, Ruth was willing to help support her aging mother-in-law. You know, Jesus said something interesting in John chapter 15. He said to his disciples, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he said something really wonderful, and it's a a verse you all know. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And isn't that really what Ruth is doing? She's laying down her life. She's basically putting no claim on her life at all, but I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to serve your God. I'm going to be with your people. She could be very easily have just gone back to Moab like her sister did, her sister-in-law, and gone back there and where everything was comfortable, everything was known. She had a place to live. Everything was normal for her, but now she's going someplace different. It reminds me of what Abraham did. Remember when God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees? Abraham was a Gentile. God called him out of what we would call today Iraq. He called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees. God said to Abram in Genesis 12, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's exactly what happened. I see Ruth a lot like Abraham, exhibiting the same kind of faith, leaving the the known to go to the unknown. And Ruth is doing the very same thing. 
And I love what it says in Hebrews 11. It says, faith, by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as inheritance. And he went out, notice, not knowing where he was going. You know, it's one thing to know where you're going when God says, I want you to go to Milwaukee. And you say, great, I know how to get there. I call the airline and, you know, I call up Southwest and I, you know, I get a flight to St. Louis. It's that simple. But God says to Abram, before he left, he said, just start going. Just go. Where am I going? You'll know. I'll, I'll show you along the way. So he, he begins by faith. He doesn't even know where he's going. But notice, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For, listen, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is of God. I love that. What faith? And now Ruth is demonstrating a very similar faith, leaving it all behind to go. Not only this choice that she made to follow Naomi, not only would it be to the saving of her own soul, because now she's going to Naomi's God, who is Almighty God, the one that we serve, Jehovah. We serve Jesus, God in three persons. Now, not only would uh, Ruth be... You know, this decision that she made was, would not only be to the saving of her own soul, but the Lord would reward her for her faithfulness. He would reward her. Certainly in this life, he would, he would uh, reward her. And notice verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Have you been talked to somebody like that? When you, you're not going to convince them. You're saying, no, I need you to stay home. I'm not going home. I remember my mother did that to me one time, and she saved me from an accident that would have no doubt killed me. I was late for school one morning when we lived in Michigan, and my brother, who was 16, and I was 10 years old, and we were late. We woke up late. Electricity went out. I don't remember what happened, but we were all late. My brother, my mom was working midnights, and she was sleeping, and I was going to ride my, with my brother, and we were on our way out the door. My mom gets out of bed, and she always slept. I mean, she was a cop. She worked late hours. She's on the graveyard shift, and she woke up out of a dead sleep, and she says, no, I'm going to take you to school today. And I'm like, mom, I want to go with Rich. We listened to Van Halen, and we really crank it up really loud. I wanted to go with him because we were going to listen to Jamie's crying and eruption at full peak volume with the jacked up rims and the whole nine, right? So I'm like, I want to go with him. And my mom's like, you're going with me. I'm taking you. And she was so adamant. There was no reasoning with her. Mom, if you're watching, you remember she said, no, you're going to go with me. And you know what? I'm glad I did. Because minutes away from that, my brother was in an accident, and we never wore seatbelts. And he went off the embankment, went, got cut off by a car, went down the embankment at a very high rate of speed and hit a telephone pole like this. And right where I was sitting, where I would have been seated, was a telephone pole about that big around. I would have been dead instantly. And so, there was no talking to Ruth. You know, Naomi's like, okay, you want to go with me? Go with me, right? Ruth's heart was like flint, just like Jesus' heart was to go to Jerusalem. He had a mission. He, he wasn't going to be deterred from it, and that's exactly what Ruth was. Now, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women of Bethlehem said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, and here she puts on her Eeyore mask, 
She said to them, don't call me Naomi. In other words, don't call me pleasant, but call me Mara. Bitter. Call me bitterness. Don't call me pleasant. I'm bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with, with me. In other words, God allowed, you know, she's looking at God. and No, no doubt, I, I don't want to be too hard on her, but have you met people like that? Where they just, when, when something hits them, they can either get bitter or they can get better. And I think at this time, she was probably in a pity party and kind of looking at herself, looking maybe a little too much on herself. And again, we don't blame her. She lost her husband and her sons. Very difficult. But isn't it true that all calamities, difficulties, hardships will make us either bitter or they will make us better? And the choice is how you deal with it. And the choice is what you think is really happening behind the scenes. Is God doing this because you've sinned? And because, of, because you've sinned in the past and this has happened to you, it's because you deserve it, right? If, is that your heart? I mean, if you confessed your sin, is God like that? No, he's not. But is it true that sometimes these horrible things happen like this? Yes, it is. And we've got a choice to make. I can either get bitter or I can get better. And getting bitter is very natural. It's very easy and even justified by the world. But God says, do you understand what I'm doing? And you may not understand. You might not understand what God is doing at that moment. But let me tell you something. Sometimes it's years that go by and you realize, you know what? As a result of that agony, that pain that God allowed me, that he was with me through, he allowed me to go through this very dark valley. As a result of that, I've grown so much. And I've been able to minister to people that I wouldn't normally be able to minister to. There's so much that God can do in a heart that's broken. He can do a lot more with a life that is broken than a life that thinks it's all that. A life that's proud and thinks, man, I've got the skills, I've got the abilities, I've got the money, I've got everything going for me, and nothing is, I, I can do everything. And God says, I can't do much with you. But boy, I can take somebody who is crushed underfoot, like David was. Because of his sin, David was crushed. Like Job, what did he say in Job 13, verse 15? Though he slay me, though God you allowed these things to come upon me, yet I will trust him. Wow. Wow, what an amazing thing. And then at the end of Job's trial of losing everything, he could say, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Had God done a great work in this man? You better believe it. Was there any other way to do it, to get him to this place? Evidently not. Sometimes those great calamities bring us forth like gold, just like a refiner would do, a goldsmith or a silversmith. You've heard this analogy, but they heat up the fire. They have that molten silver, that molten gold. They heat it up, then they scrape off the dross, the impurities that the heat brings up to the surface. And then they scrape it off, and then they heat it up even more, and then more impurities come up. And sometimes our trials in our life are like that. Don't think it's always the devil's fault when something horrible happens to you. Sometimes it's just God saying, I'm going to make you an even brighter trophy than you could have ever imagined. And you're going to be able to be a witness to me unlike you've ever imagined. And you're going to know the depths of my character and who I am in your life deeper than most people will ever know. The people who have gone through the deep waters, boy, they've got something that most people don't have. 
David said in Psalm, Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Being with God in a, in a calamity is the best thing. The three lads in the furnace in, in Daniel 3, right? They were content. They were on fire. Or they, they weren't on fire, but they were in the midst of a furnace that should have consumed them. And they had coats on. They should have been candles, and they, they were content because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was in there in the midst of them. And Nebuchadnezzar even remarked, who is that in there? They could see down into the pit or somehow they could see who's the fourth one. And they were content to be there with Jesus. If he is with you going through something, boy, he can do anything. Notice she says, I went out full. She says this to the women of Bethlehem after she comes back without her husband, without her sons, and now one daughter-in-law. I went out full, she says, and the Lord has brought me home empty again. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Again, not to be too hard, but again, it's just woe is me, woe is me, and for good reason, I guess. But hard to be around for too long. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so barley harvest is, is one of these um, harvests that's it's, it's, it's a grain that's a little less... Um, um, it's not as important in their life as, say, wheat is. It's a lesser grain... But we're going to see that through this timing that she's in it, and isn't it interesting how God is very much aware of the timing of everything? And we're going to see that at this right time, as she comes into Bethlehem, at this particular time, it's going to be the time of harvest. And there's going to be a man named Boaz, remember, whose mother was Rahab from Jericho. They would have a child named Obed. Obed would have Jesse. Jesse would have David. Actually, I, I messed up one there, but there's, there's Boaz and, uh, and, um, and, 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 uh, and Ruth. They're in that line. And so, what an amazing story. We're going to see the, the, this whole idea of the kinsman redeemer that Boaz is. He's, a, he's an excellent type of Jesus Christ. Maybe not an excellent type, but he's a type of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at that as we get into chapters 2 and 3. But be encouraged. You know, I, I love this, um, this part of the scripture because it just, there, there's so much here. There's so much here. Certainly the kinsman redeemer. And I love the fact as we get toward the latter part of the book, you're going to see the genealogy written out there, right, right in front of us in plain black and white of Judah through King David. And why is that important? Because it substantiates the claim that David was the king. He was the first king of Israel. And through David's line, through the line of Judah, ultimately would be Jesus Christ. And that's what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. It's about Jesus being the rightful king to the throne. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this uh, tiny little book, and we thank you for the lessons that we have learned and will certainly be learning as we look into it, Lord. Thank you for Ruth's 
life, and Lord, how you brought this woman uh, out of obscurity, uh, a woman, a Gentile woman, no doubt, and, and brought her into a place, Lord, where she would not only be saved herself, Lord, but she would also be privileged to be in the line, in the lineage of her Savior and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we give praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.